Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Welcome back to another episode from the Asian Madness podcast. So, CrimeCon was two weekends ago, and I have to say, it was amazing, as always. It was my first time participating as a podcaster, and not as a regular attendee. So that was extremely fun. It was great to meet new people and meet old friends. Thank you to everyone who showed up to say hello. I was not prepared for any attention, so to say I was unprepared and bewildered, would be quite correct. Shout out to Pia from Crimes from the East. Didn't know she was coming, but it was such a nice surprise. If this sounds interesting, remember that there will be a crime con every year, so do come if you can. Anyway, that's enough about crime con. Before I get to today's case though, I would like to talk about a new podcast I've come across recently. It's called Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast. I think it's pretty self-explanatory what it's about. So here's a quick snippet. You see? Easy. Now, follow what I did. He shoved the bolster into Gavin's face. Go. Go and practice killing my wife. So this podcast is a revived look at the most heinous crimes that happen across Asia. The episodes are very well produced and they're creepily immersive. If that sounds like something you would like, go ahead and search for them and subscribe. Okay, now on to today's case. Thank you, Mish, for suggesting this case, and although I've previously heard of it, I have never had a chance to really look into it. I have to say, it appears to be a very straightforward case on the surface, where there are victims, a crime takes place, and the bad guys get caught and punished. But the more you look into it, the weirder and more confusing it gets. It makes me wonder how the law actually works sometimes. Our laws are pretty much man-made. It's technically very absolute in most countries, and while its main purpose is to serve and protect the people, is it always correct, though? What happens when the people who are supposed to follow the law and uphold the law don't do it? How do you fight back against this? When crime takes place, it's normal to want to place the blame on someone. But what if you blame it on the wrong someone? And how far does someone have to go to prove their innocence? These are some questions I had for myself after looking into this case. And 
there's definitely more questions. This is the case of the alleged kidnapping, rape, and murder of the Chung sisters on the island of Cebu in the Philippines. It's important to note that their bodies were never officially recovered, but it was still treated as a kidnapping, rape, and murder case. Let's begin. This case is a lot more complicated than I initially thought it to be, so hopefully I can tell it to you guys in a way that's easy to follow and understand. This case began on the night of July 16, 1997, at the Ayala Center in Cebu. Just a quick refresher, Cebu Island is located in the central Visayas region in the Philippines, and Cebu City is considered the oldest city in the Philippines, as in it was the first Spanish settlement and the first capital city of the Philippines. The new capital city of the Philippines is Manila now. Cebu is known as a beautiful place with beautiful beaches, so understandably, it is a tourist hotspot. Now let's talk about the Chung family. There are seven members in the Chung family. The father, Dionisio, the mother, Thelma, and their five kids, consisting of three sons and two daughters. We will be focusing on their two daughters, Jacqueline, who was 23, and Mary Joy, who was 21. On the evening of July 16, 1997, the two sisters had gone to the Ayala Center to do some shopping. When they failed to return home, their family members began to worry and panic. This situation was then reported to the local police, who then began to look for clues as to what could have happened to the girls. Did they lose track of time? Did they run away? Or did someone do something to these two girls? The police searched the area, trying to figure out what could have happened to the girls, and two days later, on the 18th, the police received a call from someone stating that they had found a battered, decomposing body of a woman. It was said that very little was recorded of the body found, but it was believed at the time that the woman was one of the sisters, Mary Joy. The corpse was also said to have been wearing the same outfit Mary Joy was wearing on the 16th, the day she disappeared. Jacqueline, though, was never found. They managed to find some semen sample in the woman's body, but how much was found, they were unable to agree on. Some say a cup's worth, which is a lot, and some say just a speck. Regardless, it doesn't seem like it was ever tested, and everyone just accepted that it was the body of Mary Joy. Now, let's talk about the Larañaga family. Manuel Larañaga was a Spanish citizen, married to Margarita, a Filipino woman from the Osmeña clan of Cebu. This clan was said to be quite influential locally, described as a rich and prominent clan of Chinese-Filipino heritage. But it is also disputed whether or not they were really that influential, or if it was mostly a family tradition thing. Maybe they were quite well and influential at some point. The couple had three kids, two boys and one girl. The oldest son was Imanol, the sister was Mimi, their youngest son was Francisco Juan Larañaga, whom I will refer to as Paco from here on out. He didn't really stand out that much. All in all, I'd say he was pretty average. Like, he went to school, did things with his friends, got into trouble occasionally. That kind of average. Yes, he had gotten into a few fights as a teenager. He had a juvenile record in the NBI system, 
or the National Bureau of Investigation System, but nothing really violent or crazy. In the year 1997, Baco was 19 years old, living in Quezon City, which is part of the Metro Manila region. In other words, far, far away from Cebu. Maybe not that far, but most people who travel between the two cities prefer to take the plane, and that plane ride takes about an hour and 15 minutes. So why talk about this seemingly average guy? Well, for whatever reason, two months after the disappearance of the Chung sisters, Paco had a strange encounter at his school, the Center for Culinary Arts. Four men who said they were plainclothes officers were there to arrest Paco. Paco was 19 and didn't know what to do or not to do, so he called his older sister Mimi for help. Mimi was shocked and immediately went to see what this was all about. She asked to see the badges of these so-called officers, and when they showed it to her, they were all expired IDs. Very suspicious. She then asked to see an arrest warrant, since they were there to arrest her brother. Again, no warrant. Double suspicious. That's when the foreman revealed to her that her brother, Paco, was actually a suspect in a supposed abduction, rape, and murder of the Chong sisters in Cebu. This was news to them, and after some discussion between the two parties, the four men agreed to let Paco go under one condition. He was to go to Cebu the following day for further questioning with the local police. Well, this was a weird situation. What would you do? If you knew you were innocent, would you be willing to submit yourself to the authorities and get questioned like a suspect? Or would you run from this problem, hoping they would leave you alone? Paco had a good relationship with his family. His father was working in Spain at the time, his older brother working in the U.S. Paco, being a dual citizen of Spain and the Philippines, could have literally left the country immediately. But after discussing it with his mother, she said it was best to follow the law and see the whole thing through. She also didn't like the idea of her son running away from this as it could paint him in a negative light, even if he was innocent. People want to trust the legal process. They want to believe that the court and the legal system will find out who's guilty and who's innocent. So if you're innocent and have nothing to hide, you should cooperate and clear your name, right? Paco arrived in Cebu the following day, and along with him, six other boys slash men were also taken in for questioning. These men were Josman Aznar, Rowan Adlawan, Alberto Tao, Ariel Balanasag, James Anthony Uy, and James Andrew Uy. The last two were brothers, and one of them was a minor at the time. Paco also noted that out of the six guys, he only knew two of them, Josman and Rowan. So according to the police, They believed that these seven men, including Paco, later referred to as the Chong Seven, were all involved in some way with the disappearance of the Chong sisters. Despite the seven of them denying any involvement, and some of them denying even knowing some of the other guys, the police continued to insist that they were guilty. So what proof did they have? According to the mother of the sisters, Thelma Chong, She told the police that Paco was allegedly in love with Marijoy, 
continuously chasing her and wanting to get her attention. She told the police that Marijo had once told her of an encounter with Paco, saying that he had threatened her. If she didn't break up with her boyfriend, she'll regret it. Something along those lines. Now that Marijoy was gone and supposedly dead, it was the best lead they had. Paco, though, had a complete different version of this story. In fact, it was so different it just didn't exist. He said he had never met Marijoy, has no idea who she is, and has never expressed any interest towards her because, well, he doesn't even know her. But the police weren't buying his story. Despite lacking any concrete evidence and only having hearsay evidence, they concluded that they had apprehended those involved with the crime committed against the sisters. It's completely understandable that the police were in a hurry to solve and close the case. It was a horrible crime, or alleged crime. Kidnapping, rape, murder, not great. And when a woman's decomposing body showed up, who was apparently one of the victims... That pretty much threw the community into a fit of fear and rage. Women were understandably worried about their safety. People wanted the offenders caught and punished. I understand it all, for real. And what made everyone even more sure that the Cheong Seven were responsible was the fact that many of them came from influential or prominent families. Not a very logical or reasonable way to look at it, but again, I get it. Time and time again, we've seen rich and famous people get a slap on the wrist for horrible deeds only because they had the means to do so. Average civilians see that shit, and it makes their blood boil. It makes the law look like a joke, as if the only way to have rights nowadays is to be rich and famous. Since some of these guys were supposedly from good families, the public liked it. It gave them this kind of hope and satisfaction that regardless of your status and connections, you will still be punished for your crimes. What also didn't really help Paco's case was the fact that he had a bit of a criminal record as a juvenile. While Paco did admit to having a fair share of quote-unquote troublemaking streak, one incident stood out to the police and to the public, which really ended up painting Paco in a terrible light. According to records from the National Bureau of Investigation, Baco had once been involved in an attempted kidnapping about a year ago, in November of 1996. According to the report, five young men in a Honda Civic stopped at the University of San Carlos Girls High School. One of the men was allegedly Baco, who then tried to force a girl into the vehicle. The girl fought her way out of the situation, and seeing that there were many other students in the area, the men swiftly abandoned their plans and sped away in the car. Paco allegedly denied his involvement in this case as well, although there were police files on this crime. Either way, this part of Paco's past was never brought up again. So, let's do a quick summary. The police and the public believe that Paco and six of his alleged friends, most of whom he'd never met before, orchestrated a kidnapping scenario. Paco was allegedly in love with Marijoy, and since she refused to reciprocate the love, he took some of his friends and kidnapped Marijoy and Jacqueline as retaliation for rejecting him. The men then proceeded to take them somewhere, did God knows what, and disposed of 
one of the sisters, allegedly the corpse that they found in the ravine. On top of all that, some of these boys were from well-off families and Paco had a record for being a troublemaker and a delinquent. Does this sound like a good prosecution argument? Probably. At this point, I would say it's normal to side-eye the guys. It wouldn't be the first day some murderer's rapist denied any involvement in their crimes, right? Except, things simply did not add up. The fate of the Chong sisters shows what drugs can do. These animals were not born drugged. They made themselves into drug addicts. Paco says he only knows Rowan and Josman, but not the other suspects. In fact, he sneers as a Spanish-blooded mestizo. He would never mix with chinks like the Uyes. The most important thing is that these young boys in prison will have to watch their asses when they bend for the soap in the showers. Another kind of lethal injection. This is Teddy Loxin Jr. Good night. Let's look at Paco, as he was somehow referred to as the ringleader and the mastermind of this whole ordeal. So it would be a good time to describe what he looks like. He's pretty huge. And no, I don't mean like he's obese. I mean, he's built like a bear. I also think he has what we would consider to be a resting bitch face. Sure, he smiles under normal, acceptable circumstances, but when he's not smiling... He's got that super serious look going on, and I can 100% imagine people seeing this guy and wanting to stay out of his way. To put it plainly, his appearance did not really do him any favors. He doesn't look personable. He doesn't look like someone who'd help the little old lady cross the street. But then again, is it a good idea to judge a book based on its cover? I get it. You see a huge burly guy, mean eyes, possibly edgy-looking, walking towards you. It's not weird to feel a bit uneasy, especially if you're a woman. That's also to say, quiet, introverted, church-going, friendly-looking guys can also be your neighborhood's secret child murderer. How many times have you seen some guy get arrested for heinous crimes only to hear the neighbors say shit like, Oh, but he was such a nice boy, he always played with my dogs. You get the idea. Anyway, the proof that the police had showing the Cheong Seven guilt was not very concrete at all. It was barely solid. The trial for the Seven began shortly afterwards, and it was quite the circus. So, Jessica, what about evidence that could prove otherwise? Prove that the police are targeting the wrong people? Glad you asked. So the alleged kidnapping supposedly took place in the evening of July 16 sometime around 10 p.m., presumably when the mall closed and it was time for them to go home. So in order for the kidnappers to actually kidnap the woman, they would have to physically be in Cebu, and close to the Ayala Center, right? Let's start with the Wui brothers and their version of July 16. According to both James Andrew and James Anthony, they spent the entire night at their home in Cebu City, celebrating their dad's 50th birthday. The small party went on for most of the night, ending at around 11.30 p.m. The two boys allegedly went to sleep soon after, since it was a weekday, and did not leave their house till the morning of the following day. They were minors. They had to go to school. The boys' mother stood by their testimony, 
also adding that she had gone in to check on her sons at around 2 a.m. when she woke up. She saw that they were in bed and asleep. Next up, we have the alibis for Alberto Tao and Ariel Palanasad. In the early evening of July 16, around 7 p.m., Alberto, his wife, Ariel and his wife, brought in a van to a repair shop because the AC needed fixing. The repairman was not around at the time, so the group left the car under the care of the repairman's wife and left. The van was fixed and ready the following day at around 11 a.m. Ariel and Alberto returned with their wives, and that was that. This technically doesn't explain where the two men were at in the late hours of the 16th, but it does prove that the van they brought into the shop wasn't available, as you'll see later. As for Josman Aznar, he was having a small get-together with some of his friends at around 8 p.m. on July 16. The group of friends ate dinner, had some drinks, and left to go to a disco at 11 p.m. At around 1.30 a.m., they left the club and arrived at another bar for some more drinks. Josman's friends eventually dropped him off at his home at around 3 a.m. in the morning. Unfortunately, I was unable to find any alibi testimony for Rowan Adlawan, as it was possible that he didn't have any. Sometimes we just chill at home or do stuff alone, and no one can corroborate our whereabouts. The five men mentioned above had their own thing going on in the evening of July 16, and while some see these as concrete alibis, some do not. As for Paco's alibi, though, it was quite a different story. So Paco and his family are from Cebu. His family owns a farm in Cebu, and his mother denies that they are rich or powerful like the media paints them out to be. She insists that they are quite hardworking and live a humble life. Despite being from Cebu, though, Paco was studying in a school in Manila, which means he was at Manila during the supposed abduction, rape, and murder. How do we know this? Well, on the 16th of July, Paco had an exam. According to several, and by several I mean more than 40 eyewitnesses, he was at his school for both classes and a midterm exam. The class he supposedly attended was for Applied Mathematics, which started at 8 a.m. to 11.30 a.m., and he was on campus for an exam in the afternoon. On the evening of the 16th, a group of people, mostly Paco and his classmates, went out for a party at a bar and restaurant located in Quezon City, which is still, again, in Manila. The group of friends even took photos of the night, which were used to prove his absence in Cebu. In other words, it's difficult to be at two places at the same time. Moreover, Paco had an exam the following morning at 8 a.m., and according to his teacher, his classmates, and the attendance list, he was there. So was it possible that he took a flight after the party, arrived in Cebu, kidnapped and killed the two sisters, flew back immediately, and took an exam? Anything is possible, but again, unlikely. What did stand out and didn't help with Paco's testimony was that there was a slight discrepancy on what class he attended. The teacher's version was that it was mathematics, but Paco's statement was that it was fundamentals of cookery. Take it as you will. Some shady made-up alibi or misremembering facts from months ago. 
There were also plenty of photos from the night of the party at the restaurant to back up Paco's alibi, which you would think could help. But the prosecution dismissed those photos, claiming they were doctored. I'll post these photos in my Instagram and Facebook, but it's important to note that in one of the photographs, Paco was looking towards the left, while everyone else was looking straight at the camera. He was also the only one sitting in a white chair, and everyone else's chair was black. Obviously, Paco was inserted into the photo afterwards. I don't really know how good photoshopping skills and techniques were back in 1997, so it's hard for me to say. But haven't we all had that experience where there's one person somehow looking in the wrong direction in photos? And when you have large gatherings at restaurants and bars, isn't it normal to pull up random chairs when there aren't enough chairs? And is it weird that sometimes these chairs aren't the same make, model, and color as the others? There was also an additional witness, the doorman at Paco's residence, who had an entry logged in for Paco returning to his apartment at 10.15pm on the evening of July 16th. Except, the log itself looked weird because it looked like it was a last-minute addition, rather than a real-time record. Despite these misaligned issues, more than 40 eyewitnesses were absolutely sure that Paco was in Quezon City the whole time from July 16th to the 17th. The judge was not impressed, though. He cited that these were all friends of the accused, so it was likely they were all lying. He barely got through all of the witness testimonies, and once he was tired of hearing the same thing over and over again, he dismissed the rest. Strange, isn't it? The prosecution wasn't sold on any of the eyewitness testimonies. Not for Baco, not for anyone else. They instead began to focus on something else. Can you prove that Baco wasn't in Cebu? Wasn't it possible that he still could have hopped on a plane later in the evening, gone to Cebu and did what he did, then come back? Sure, there were flights heading out to Cebu that night, but according to airline records, Paco was not on the list for any of the flights. Since this didn't work out for the prosecutors, they then proposed the idea that Paco, being from a quote-unquote affluent family, could have flown in in a private jet. Once again, records were checked and there were no signs of any private jets flying out to Cebu that night, let alone a jet that Paco didn't even have. Before all this, I was quite understanding of the prosecution trying to find evidence that could make sense and tie these guys to the crime. But after hearing all these alibis and eyewitness testimonies, my patience was starting to run out. The law is used to protect the innocent. And technically speaking, you're innocent until proven guilty. But in this case, it almost felt like it was the other way around. Prove that you didn't kidnap and kill them. Prove that you weren't there. Prove that you didn't know the sisters. I mean, this sort of back and forth can go on forever. And when one side doesn't accept the evidence, they can just accuse the other party of lying. How are you supposed to get anywhere with this kind of process? The Asian Madness Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. As you may know from my various episodes... Asians in general are not very welcoming when it comes to therapy and mental health. But does that mean we shouldn't try and seek help when we feel like we need it? 
Say you have lots of dreams and goals, but do you feel like something is preventing you from achieving those goals? Do you feel like something is in the way of you reaching your potential and happiness? Lots of us have been there, myself included. BetterHelp is a wonderful professional counseling platform where they can match you with a licensed professional therapist. It's convenient as it's online. It's super fast where you can find someone to help you within 48 hours, and you have the choice of talking to them either via messages, phone, or video sessions. Some people might not feel comfortable with the idea of seeing a therapist in person, and this is a great way to find some balance without making you even more anxious. It's also a lot more affordable than traditional counseling. And best of all, the service is offered worldwide. I have used BetterHelp on various occasions, and it's definitely helped me through darker times. If this is something you feel you might benefit from, check out betterhelp.com slash am. That's betterhelp.com slash am. Remember though, this is not a self-help or crisis hotline. Don't wait around for happiness to drop into your lap. Take action when you can. That's betterhelp.com slash am. After 10 months of being in custody for being the main suspects with the disappearance of the Cheong sisters, someone showed up and ended up nailing these guys to the cross. A state witness appeared, and his name was Davidson Rusia, a supposed drug addict who also had felony charges in the United States. Sounds real reliable. This guy basically claimed that these seven guys were all guilty and that he was there on the night the sisters disappeared. Lucia was willing to give the police and the court what they wanted in exchange for a blanket immunity, which means he would get to go free after giving his testimony. Well, let's take a look at what he and the prosecutors agreed on. On July 15, Lucia was approached by a man named Rowan, asking Lucia to meet him on July 16th at around 2 p.m., when the two men met up the following day, Rowan told Rusia to stick around the Ayala Center Mall because something big was going to go down soon. Rusia stated that he had no idea what he meant by something big, assuming that he meant a party or something. So, he stuck around. At around 10.30pm, Rowan showed up again, this time with another one of the accused, Josman. There were two cars a white car and a red car. Lucia allegedly got into the white car, and the two cars drove around the outdoor waiting area of the mall, where two women were standing. Rowan then got out of the car, invited the two girls to join them, and when the two girls said no, he began to grab them and force them into the car. They struggled, and Rowan supposedly physically assaulted the sisters in order to keep them from struggling. Eventually, both cars arrived at a house in the area in Guadalupe, a safe house known as the quote-unquote Josman Aznar Group. Josman, Rowan, the two Uy brothers, and Larañaga exited the vehicles, and the two girls were then dragged to different rooms. Rusia and James Andrew were ordered to stay in the living room. About 20 minutes or so later, the men came out of the rooms with the girls, and once again got into their two cars. They eventually came into contact with Alberto and Ariel, who had a white van, 
and all of them, except James Andrew, abandoned their vehicles and got into the white van. James Andrew continued driving the white car. They eventually parked the white van and the white car at a precipice, and the men began to smoke pot and took turns raping the girls. Marijoy was supposedly very weak and on the brink of death at this point, so Rowan and Ariel led her to the cliff and pushed her into the ravine. As for Jacqueline, she tried to make a run for it, and they drove the van behind her, taunting her, urging her to run some more. They eventually grabbed her, put her back in the van, and beat her up some more. But according to Rusia, he was dropped off somewhere near the Ayala Center, so he had no idea what happened to her afterwards. What are your thoughts on Rusia's account? Possible? Outlandish? Well, there were a few other eyewitnesses who were out that night that ended up corroborating bits and pieces of what Rusia stated. For example, when the group of guys in the van stopped by a barbecue stand to buy some food, a man who was at the stand at the same time stated that he heard some type of commotion going on inside the van, though he couldn't see. He heard voices belonging to both men and women, and they seemed to be agitated. He also stated that the woman's voice, quote, it was as if the voice was being controlled, unquote. Another eyewitness, who was riding a tricycle near the ravine, also remembered seeing a disheveled-looking woman running on the road, and a white van blasting rock music tailing her. Another eyewitness saw a white van and a group of men at the cliffside, tossing what he thought was garbage into the ravine. He was concerned enough that he wrote down the van's license number. You would think having a license number would be helpful, but guess what? The license number was the exact same one as the van that Alberto and Ariel brought into the shop earlier that day. Remember the van's AC was broken, so they took it to a shop? And the owner testified that he began fixing it at around 9 p.m., and finished at around 11 a.m. the following day. How can a van be at two places at the same time? Unless they had two vans with the same numbers. Or did the car shop owner lie? Or was this all thoroughly planned ahead? It seems a bit extra to go through such lengths, but then again, crazier things have happened, so nothing is impossible. It was also later rumored that some of the eyewitnesses from July 16th actually had no idea what was going on. They were approached by someone with official-looking papers, forced to sign it, and had to agree to whatever was written on the paper. This is, of course, hearsay. But just wanted to throw that out there. It's pretty clear this trial was nothing close to transparent. Lucia spent days on the stand talking about his side of the story. The prosecution also asked him questions, and of course... They always aligned, and the story had no holes. The public was inclined to believe Rusia's story, because it's hard to believe someone innocent would go on trial to admit to a heinous crime. Sure, he was dragging seven other people down with him, but why would someone do that? I can think of a few reasons, but then again, that's speculation on my part. He could be telling the truth, but considering all the alibis and the witness testimonies supporting the Cheong Seven, it's hard to come to a conclusion. People were also feeling sad and supportive for the Cheong family, which is reasonable. 
the family lost two daughters, whether missing or dead, and assuming the dead body did belong to Mari Joy, then it was not just kidnapping, but murder as well. It makes sense for people to want to find the perpetrators as fast as possible. Needless to say, Lucia did a good job as a state witness, as his version worked well for the prosecutors. Then, when it came to the cross-examination from the defense, it got a bit weird. Whenever a slightly tougher question was asked, Lucia would suddenly ask to be excused because he was feeling sick. The judge was even sympathetic to Lucia, and when he saw that he was tired and not feeling well, he adjourned the trial. The defense also were suspicious of Lucia, as not only was he an alleged drug addict, he also had a criminal record in the state of Missouri, in the United States. He apparently also did not pass as a reliable witness, but the prosecution insisted on using him. And, of course, the judge allowed it. What's even more interesting is that Thelma Chung, the mother of the sisters, immediately stated that she had forgiven Lucia for everything. During his incarceration, she even brought him gifts and birthday cakes. Some people find this as odd behavior, stating that it's quite strange to be so forgiving when it came to her daughter's death. If true, Lucia literally did the bare minimum of admitting his guilt. But then again, that can be viewed as heroic in this situation. Some might even argue that everyone reacts differently under terrible circumstances, which I agree. Maybe she just wanted to find out the truth, and even if the details were horrible, she was willing to let it go, just as long as she knew what happened. What do you think? People wanted answers. A verdict. It was taking a little long. And that's when it was discovered that Thelma Chung's sister, Cheryl, had personal ties to the then-Filipino president, Joseph Estrada. In fact, she was working as his personal secretary. Thelma herself had ties to a Supreme Court judge. This is interesting to note, because when this case started out, people were eager to paint the Larañaga family as the powerful family with ties and influence. But turns out, the Chungs weren't as helpless as you might have thought. At this point, I would even say they were way more influential. President Estrada vowed that he would make sure this trial proceeded quickly and immediately tossed in four other police agencies into the investigation. The judge presiding over the trial was Judge Ocampo, and once he was done listening to both sides, he adjourned the court to make his decision. It took three months, and everyone was hopeful. The defense felt like they had a lot of solid evidence that could prove the seven members' innocence. At the same time, though, the court and the police were under a lot of pressure to close the case, and it also seemed as if the judge wasn't particularly sympathetic towards the accused. I mean, he was quite dismissive in many ways. So three months went by, and on May 5, 1999, he announced that all of the accused were sentenced to two life sentences. As for Rusia, his deal was honored, and he became a free man. As for the judge's decision, he explained that if he had solid proof that the men killed the two women, he would have passed down the death sentence. But right now, all they had to go on were kidnapping charges. He wasn't even convinced that the body they found earlier belonged to Marijoy. 
Like I mentioned, not a lot of information was recorded at the time for whatever reason. And while some stated that their fingerprints matched those of Mari Joy, it was not definitive. This verdict was not good news to either side. The defense were hoping that the Chung Seven would be found not guilty, and the prosecution expected the death penalty. The Chung family were especially not happy, as they found it insulting and unjust to their two daughters. Most officers who were part of the prosecution team received a promotion of some sort. What a coincidence! Reports were clamoring to get the judge's opinion on his decision, and someone even asked him if he was in fear of his life now. He laughed it off and said no, and that he didn't think it would be of any use to fear for his life. Well, something else happened shortly after. The verdict was announced in May, and on October 7, 1999, only five months later, Judge Ocampo was found dead in the waterfront hotel. He had slit marks on both his wrists and ankles. Blood was everywhere. He also had a gunshot wound to his head. A suicide note was also found in his room, basically detailing that he was tired and that he no longer felt hopeful. It was ruled a suicide for pretty obvious reasons, but some people kind of doubt that. It was rumored that he had a female companion on the evening he checked in, and the way in which he killed himself was strange. It's as if he tried to bleed to death from his cuts, and when it wasn't working, he finally took out his gun and shot himself. His suicide note was never analyzed, so that is something we will never know for sure. The timing is also pretty strange, I must admit. But then again, coincidence? The defendants and their families were extremely upset with the verdict. They were convinced that they were being set up, just as a means for police to quickly close a case, get a better rating, and higher approval rates. They believed the accused were innocent, and yet they all had to spend the rest of their lives in prison. That wasn't justice for them. On the other hand, though, the Chong family and their supporters sort of got what they wanted. A guilty verdict. But again, that wasn't good enough for them. They were hoping these men would be put to death. Despite Rusia's account, it was only enough to put the guys away for life, still not enough for the death sentence. Let's stop for a minute here, though. Let's pretend that we know for sure the Chong Seven were framed and innocent. It's true that the police never really investigated any other potential suspects. They heard about Paco, and before they had any evidence, they were like, yep, 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 got the guy. So if it wasn't Paco and the other six guys, what could have happened to the sisters? Here's a bit of information that was never really looked into, or at least never made it into the trial. Dionisio Chong, the father of the two sisters, was supposedly working under a man who was suspected of trafficking drugs. The name of this drug lord is not really clear, but I've seen mentions of it either being Peter Lim or Patrick Lim. Anyway, this guy is supposedly a drug lord in the area, and the drug police were onto him. Dionisio was allegedly then fired from this job, and the police approached him, asking him to take the stand and testify at the Congressional Committee on Dangerous Drugs. This all happened right before his two daughters went missing. Dionisio seemed to have accepted this request to testify, but what do you know? Before that could happen, his two daughters went missing, 
which then resulted in him changing his mind about testifying against his former boss. There are two ways you can look at this. One, this drug lord threatened Dionisio, telling him not to testify, and when it didn't work, he took the two girls in order to force him to change his mind. If you testify or tell the police, your daughters will die. Dionisio understandably changed his mind. Then they maybe could have paid off a ton of people to pin the crime on Paco and company, which is why the witness testimonies from both sides do not match up at all. It's not impossible everything against the Chong Seven was fabricated, but I mean, that's a lot of work and a lot of people to keep track of. As for why these seven guys were picked to be scapegoats, rumors stated that their families did not get along with the drug lord, so he picked them to take the fall. Also, the four plainclothes police officers that showed up to arrest Paco were also suspected to have been working for the drug lord. Hmm. Or, let's look at scenario number two. Maybe it had nothing to do with the drug lord. Maybe after his two daughters disappeared, Dionisio was too sad and distracted to testify. As in, he had more important things to do, which also makes sense to me. Although it wouldn't be a bad idea to put away a drug lord, saving your energy on finding your kids might seem more important. But, back to reality. The court already found the Chong Seven guilty, sentenced to life in prison. What now? Baco's parents filed an appeal to the Supreme Court, hoping to get another trial. They felt like the initial trial was very biased, and lots of the evidence the defense team presented were quickly dismissed. Well, what's the worst that could happen, right? You don't know till you fight for it. Well, the worst of the worst happened. Instead of keeping the sentence as is, in 2004, all their sentences were raised to the death penalty. Except for one of the Wee brothers, who was a minor at the time. I mean, damn, talk about a major letdown. At this point, things seemed quite bleak and hopeless, but there was one last weapon the Larañaga family had, and that was his dual citizenship. As you may recall, Baco is both Filipino and Spanish, and in Spain, there is no death penalty and it would be considered illegal to execute one of their citizens. The Larañaga family ended up asking tons of journalists for help, and this case eventually made its way to the government, the king, the European Union, and even the United Nations. They all stood up for Paco and condemned putting these men to death. And after some back and forth, and after the Spanish Minister of Defense met the then-Filipino president, Gloria Arroyo, she abolished capital punishment in the year 2006. The Spanish government also asked the Filipino Department of Justice to allow Spain to take in Paco, where he would be able to serve out the remainder of his sentence. He eventually flew to Spain in October 2009, initially imprisoned in the Madrid Central Penitentiary at Soto del Rey, but later moved on to another prison in San Sebastián where he was allowed to continue his education and work while imprisoned. He found paid work at a restaurant, and, in a sense, he managed to continue his initial career of becoming a chef. Paco himself recognizes that he is lucky that this happened, but he admits that being in Spain felt a lot lonelier than in the Philippines, as he wasn't able to see his family as often, and none of his friends are there. 
As for the rest of the Cheong Seven, they managed to escape death as well, but are still deemed as guilty. In the year 2019, another strange event occurred. The then Director General of the Bureau of Corrections released Josman, Ariel, Alberto, and James Anthony Uy based on the Good Conduct Time Allowance Law. I guess it just means that they were model prisoners and the director felt it was okay to let them go. This caused an uproar with the Chung supporters and the Chung family. They of course called this out, requesting that the president look into this matter and take action. And by action, they mean re-arrest these guys. President Duterte looked into matters and demanded that these four convicts surrender themselves once again. He also fired the director general for making this decision in the first place. The four men all ended up surrendering themselves to authorities, possibly tired of the situation and not wanting to live the life of an escaped convict for the rest of their lives. So that's the main gist of the case. How do you feel about it? Before we end this episode, though, a few things we must discuss. The most important one is, what really happened to Jacqueline and Mary Joy? Like I mentioned, the body they found two days after their disappearance was thought to be Mary Joy, based off of her clothes and fingerprints. That might sound very promising and solid, except for whatever reason, a lot of people doubt this finding. If the Chung Seven were framed, could they have dressed another woman up to look like one of the sisters and try to pass her off as Mary Joy? Or maybe it really was Mary Joy, but then again, if the Chung Seven didn't kill her, who did? There's another theory about the two sisters, and this one might seem a bit outlandish. Not impossible, just strange. Some say the sisters are not dead. They were never quote-unquote kidnapped. Instead, they somehow moved to Canada undetected and are living a good life there. Some online sleuths dug up photos of Thelma Chung with family members, and two of the women in the photos resembled her two daughters. Others, though, have said that one of the girls is actually their other daughter, Debbie Chung, and the other woman in the photo is actually her sister-in-law. You will have to see these photos yourself when I post them online, and they really do resemble the two sisters. Wouldn't be a stretch if either one of them was in fact a younger sister, since, you know, they're sisters and probably look like each other. Others say while Mari Joy may be dead or gone, Jacqueline is 100% alive. The drug lord was said to have even attended Jacqueline's wedding, which the Chung family explained that it was really Debbie's wedding. Another thing that contradicts the existence of Debbie Chung, as in the youngest sister, is that the Chung family supposedly had two daughters and three sons. And if that was the case, then who the hell is Debbie? The internet seems quite in favor of the Chung Seven as in they strongly believe they are innocent and are simply framed for something they didn't do. This whole thing sounds so messy. I cannot decide who is more reliable and who is full of shit anymore. There were a few movies and documentaries based off of this case, and if you want to see the side of the Chung Seven, I suggest you watch Give Up Tomorrow. It's actually very well made, full of twists and turns. Thelma Chung was interviewed about her thoughts on Bako getting transferred and the abolishment of the death sentence. She said she was furious and would put all her efforts into finding loopholes to stop this from happening. As for the possibility of the men getting out of prison, 
She made very strange comments about how she made very strange comments about how her and her whole family will kill these guys if they were ever to get out. But she was like laughing and wheezing the whole time. I have done my part already. I've done so much for my part. What more could I do? Diba? Sakit eh. Very painful eh. You know, I will die thinking of Spain. <laughs> making a fool of me. Diba? I will die because thinking of Spain, making a fool of me. Imagine I already got justice and they got back Paco. Diba? I will die thinking I lost two daughters, then Paco is set free. I will die. If Paco come home, I will kill him. <laughs> and that, that's it's going to be the worst thing that will happen to me, a Christian. I will kill somebody. <laughs> and I'm afraid my children will kill him too. <laughs> An NBI. And my husband. They're going to work together and plan how to kill Paco. <laughs> I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. Like, okay, people react to tragedies very differently. But it was just a bit odd watching and hearing her talk. Kind of chilling, to be honest. Thelma was asked about her relationship with Rusia, who supposedly took part in murdering her daughters. She said she forgives him 100%, and that he's like a family friend now. What's kind of chilling is that she admitted on camera that he played the part of a good witness as the prosecution altered his appearance to fit that of a good boy, as in well-dressed, combed hair, wearing thin-rimmed glasses. That just did not sit well with me. Was Rusia really the star of the witness, as they claim he was? Or was he perhaps pressured into doing this in order to start a new life with a clean slate? None of the Chong Seven showed signs of even knowing him prior to meeting him at court. What the hell is going on? It's safe to say that everyone is fighting for justice, but it's whether you're fighting for the Chong family or for the Chong Seven. I'm aware that I might sound a bit biased in this episode, as in I have more sympathy for the Chong Seven, but if you look at the evidence and the reports presented, it's kind of hard not to. At this point, I believe these guys deserve at least another trial, with fresh eyes and new people. So there you have it. The very complex, messy, and sad story of the Cheong sisters and the Cheong seven. I'm going to put a poll on my Instagram after this is released because I'm really curious to know what you guys think. I have a lot of Filipino listeners, if I do say so myself, so I'm sure many of you guys probably already know enough about this case to have an opinion on it. As for people hearing about it for the first time, I'm very curious. I apologize for being a bit biased, but like I said, some things just don't match up. Although Thelma Chung doesn't really sit well with me, I have no ill will towards her daughters. I do hope they're not dead, and if they're alive and well, then great. But at this point, it's impossible to go back on what you campaigned so hard for. People feel sympathy for families who lose their kids. And if this indeed was a whole elaborate setup, then it is technically impossible to try and fix it now. Imagine the backlash. And not only for the family, 
but for all those witnesses and prosecutors who got promoted. We want to believe the law is fair and square, but it is created and maintained by us humans, and we are far from perfect. If the Chung Seven are guilty, well, then no real issue here. They were found guilty anyways. I would love to hear your thoughts, especially if you have something against the Chung Seven or are in support of the Chung family. Thank you again for tuning in. Researching this case was exhausting, but definitely a wild ride. Stay safe and be kind. Till next time. Before I go, I'd like to thank the following people. Dana.gak from Mexico. Thank you, Janine Marie from the Philippines. Thank you from Create Nickname 01 from the U.S. And Diet Nut 1980 from the U.S. Thanks, Amy Davidson and Kathleen West for pledging to my Patreon. All your support means the world to me, because without listeners, there is no Asian Madness podcast. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.